like to open your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 5 tonight. There are a lot of verses up there. I sent that over to Rachel this afternoon and she said, you're going to need an intervention. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) So I was driving all over today. Uh, Cheryl's in Wisconsin, so that makes me resident taxi driver. And taking the kids everywhere they needed to be and listening to the radio. And I was listening to the Beatles channel on Sirius XM. This is not a commercial. Uh, And Paul Reiser was sharing some thoughts and memories uh, related to the Fab Four. Paul Reiser, I don't know if you remember him, had the show Mad About You back in the 90s. And he's a comedian. In fact, he's been recently on uh, Stranger Things, I think. So he was just talking about the music. And he said, I was trying to understand what it is about the music that, that I like so much. There's something about one of those old songs, Please Please Me, you know, comes on the radio, or, or one of these old songs, he says, it just, it just takes me back. And he said, I think it's because these songs are, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds, and it's perfect. The song is just done, and it takes you back to where you were. Hopefully you were in a good place. If you were in a bad place, then this does not apply. <laughs> but he was talking about how they are just unchanging. And as I listened to that, I thought, yeah, yeah, I, I get that. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that and I go, all right, you know what I'm in? And then I remembered Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What is it about Jesus that gives me such peace? It is that He is unchanging. He is consistent. He is solid. He is our foundation. Now with Cheryl gone this week, I have felt at times like I was in the midst of a hurricane just trying to get everything done and trying to get everyone where they need to be and, and my head hitting the pillow late at night and still having you know more studying that's on my mind as I'm lying there. And, and I realized in talking with Les today that in the midst of all of that hurricane-like swirling around, I, I'm sitting in the eye. I mean, I have perfect peace. I've been very busy and a little physically tired, but I've just been at peace. It's because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is our peace. He is the the consistent one. And if if you look back, we're going to begin in Hebrews 5, but look back at Hebrews chapter 3 just for a moment. Let me remind you what we've seen before. Verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then skip over to chapter 4 and look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Which I told you on Sunday, our confession is Jesus. So he is the the key to all of this. I'm not saying anything new with that, but just a reminder... He is the eye of the hurricane. He is the peace in the storm. He is the calm in the difficulties. He is the solid rock on which we stand. And He is the great high priest of our confession. In fact, He is not just any priest. He's not just another priest in a long line of priests. We claim His name before God because He's both the mediator and the sacrifice. He is both priest and lamb. But it's even more than that, and we're we're getting close in our study through this amazing sermon. It's more just that he's mediator and sacrifice. He is in a completely different order than everyone else in the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron. 
Jesus is not in that priesthood. For one thing, he's not even of the tribe of Levi, so he can't be of that priesthood. He's from Judah, which is the royal kingly tribe. He's of a different order, an exclusive order. In fact, it's a priestly order that only belongs to those who bear the title King of Peace and Priest of God Most High. And we'll talk about that next week. If you want to read ahead, read Genesis 14, read Hebrews chapter 7. But in our study tonight, what the pastor is going to continue with as he continues to call us to consider Jesus, he continues to fix our eyes on Jesus, verse after verse after verse in this study. And where he takes us tonight is into a comparative analysis, if you will, of similarities and and differences between the ancient priests of Israel and Jesus Christ, the great high priest of our confession. And if we begin then picking up in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. I want to give you five qualifications for any priest that the Hebrew writer lays out before us. Five qualifications. But before we even get to the first one... Ask yourself this question. Why was Aaron and his lineage given the office of high priest? Now you might say, well, the tribe of Levi, they aligned themselves with Moses in the golden calf incident, right? Do you remember that? They they said, we'll stand, we stand with Moses. And he had everyone of the tribe of Levi then go and take a sword to everyone who stood against Moses. And so God made Levi the priestly tribe. Well, that's not what I'm talking about here. Not just the tribe of Levi, but Aaron himself. Why Aaron? And why Aaron's sons or grandsons and then great-grandsons after him? Why were they given the high priestly office? Did they earn it? Or was it divine nepotism, perhaps? You know, he was Moe's bro. So because of that, well, he, I mean, he's, he's in the family, so we got to do it. He's unqualified, but he's related to Moses, therefore a shoe-in. Why Aaron? If you think more about what we know of Aaron in the Scriptures, you know that Aaron is the same man who took a graving tool and hammered out the molten golden calf. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 5. The first high priest, this is what he did. Aaron's also the one who was uh, jealous along with his sister Miriam and hammered on Moses. Numbers chapter 12 tells us. And then if that wasn't enough, he was the father of Nadab and Abihu, who I like to call Nadork and Abby Normal, but let's not go there. Those two sons of Aaron got themselves hammered. On the day of the consecration, they got drunk and offered up strange fire to the Lord, and they burned out in their ministry very quickly. If you recall that story. This is not, you know, good credibility for a high priestly line. And this is the first high priest and his two sons. Why the Aaronic, or the priesthood of Aaron? Micah chapter 6, verse 4 tells us, 
The Lord says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Why Moses? Because God chose him. Why Aaron? Because it was God's decision. Because God called him. Because God God appointed him. And you can say, that's number one, in the qualifications of a high priest, the high priest was holy by appointment. Appointed by God. Holy by appointment. The office had nothing to do with the personal virtue of the priest, of the man. It wasn't that, you know, we got the application out and we began to look at all the qualities that we were looking for and he, he matches up pretty well, so we'll hire him. No, he was appointed by God. God's choice, God's decision, holy by appointment. And when I say holy, don't misunderstand. I'm simply saying he was set apart by the appointment of God to be involved with, I like this in verse 1, things pertaining to God. Can you say that your life is involved with things pertaining to God? That that's what our lives are about? In in our priesthood, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but do you realize that to accept Jesus is to receive a divine appointment to a royal priesthood? It's not just our atmospheric appointment. You know, we have that. We have an atmospheric appointment to meet Him in the clouds. Okay? But we also have a holy appointment, a divine appointment. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, which he's ripping off from statements made about Israel. Peter now applies it to Gentiles and says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a royal priesthood. You are appointed to that. You are not appointed as a follower of Jesus Christ because you made the grade. Because your qualifications just happen to be good enough. Oh no, that's not why anyone bears the name Christian. It has nothing to do with your resume. Same as Aaron. So I can look at Aaron and his failures. I can look at his sons and their abject, ridiculous failures And I can say, wow, I was appointed the same way. So when I am abnormal, when when I'm a dork, (laughs) when I'm sinning, my appointment was not based on what I have done, but based on God's decision, God's choice. Jesus was appointed. Appointed to His role. Appointed a priest. Not out of sin, like like we have been called out of sin and appointed as followers of Jesus, called to be followers of Jesus. Uh, No, He was appointed into sin. Appointed to become human and to walk among us and to be in the midst of our sin and then to bear our sin on the cross. Acts chapter 3 verse 19, Peter says, Therefore repent and return so your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. The appointment is divine. We are holy by appointment. And, and the high priest, that's qualification number one, was holy by appointment. Qualification number two, he was human in weakness. And I'll put it to you this way. To be the high priest of Israel, you had to be human in weakness. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is also beset with weakness, verse 2. This is something we get backwards. And it it parallels the the appointment of verse 1. Listen, humanity and frailty and inability and limitations and shortcomings are not disqualifications to ministry. They are qualifications for ministry. Have you ever thought about it that way? See, we live in a culture, in a world, that says you get a raise if you've made the grade, if you've done the work, if you've shown yourself, you know, worthy. And that's that's not how ministry happens. In fact, these things, let me say them again, humanity, frailty, inability, limitations, shortcomings, they're not disqualifications to ministry. In fact, they are prerequisites. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying if you want to be in ministry, the first and foremost, most important thing you understand is that you're weak. The second one is like it. You can't do it. I love hearing that. When we say, hey, why don't you, why don't you lead that Bible study? Oh, I can't do that. Oh, you're perfect. You are the one for the job. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Upside down. And yet the Bible says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord, Zechariah 4.6. Or, or 2 Corinthians 12.9, where Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. So if you come before the Lord with all kinds of gifts and powers and abilities, and you lay it out on the table and say, Look at what I can do for you, God's going to be looking for where is the weak spot in your life. Because that's where you will be perfected. That's where His power will be at work. Not in your strength, not in my power, but in our weakness. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And we will see when we ultimately get to Hebrews chapter 11 that after describing this vast company of amazing faith, He says about all these people, men and women combined, He said from weakness they were made strong. You want to know what you have in common with every single person we read about in Scripture? You began weak. So did they. But God perfects His power, His strength, His grace in our weakness. And just as the priests of Israel had to be human to be gentle and compassionate, had to themselves be beset with weakness so that they could relate with the rest of the people, interesting, so God had to become human. And in becoming human, what he did, as we've been talking about, is he revealed his true empathy for us. God's always known that he understood us. And I would add, as I said, I believe on Sunday, God has always understood us. Completely. There is nothing about you he does not understand. There's nothing about me that that God isn't fully aware of how I feel, what my thoughts are, what's difficult, what's easy, all of that. God God gets it. The whole human experience. Jesus didn't become human so God could experience humanity. Jesus became human so we could watch Him experience humanity. So that we could experience God experiencing humanity. If that makes any sense. So that we would know that when God says, I know where you are, He's right on. We can believe Him. Because He became human and weak. And just like you and just like me. Now, because of all this, 
the high priest was also not only holy by appointment and humanly weak, but he had to be, number three, humble in his calling. Humble in his calling. Look at verse 4 again. No one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Humble in his calling. James 4.10 tells us, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Well, instead, what mankind does is we exalt ourselves. We lift ourselves up by our bootstraps, and God says, no, 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 no. I'd rather you just come to me in weakness and willingness, and I'll do the exalting. You know, just accept your appointment to the royal priesthood, and I will lift you up. Recognize that you are humanly weak. I will make you strong and be humble. Unfortunately, a lot of the priests, especially in the high priesthood, I think of Caiaphas and Annas, among the others, who instead of serving, ended up strutting. Ended up lifting themselves up and and bearing themselves as as greater than. Yeda and I were actually having this conversation yesterday a little bit about something that that I've mentioned before. I should write an op-ed. It bothers me. It's Christian celebrity. And in my opinion, my humble opinion, there's no room in the church for Christian celebrity. It is completely diametrically opposed to following Jesus. I'm talking about authors and you know and, and speakers and musicians and you know if your Twitter feed has a hundred thousand or more followers, you know, I mean, in the church, the pursuit of Christian celebrity and and how we as Christians bear it up. Oh, did you go to the so-and-so concert? Wow, he was awesome. Really? Was he? Or was God awesome who everybody was there to really worship? You know, I, and I, I understand that, well, but Rick, you got to get the message out. So that's why we have speakers who go around and they speak at these big, huge conventions. And please don't misread me. I'm not opposed to a bunch of people going to a convention. Go! Be filled. Praise the Lord. Just don't get all caught up in the Christian celebrity. And we say, I've got to do it. I gotta get the word out. I need to get the word to more people. I, I've had that thought, that sinful human thought. I have. You know, what if, what if I just move the family to downtown Seattle? I mean, the population base would be so much bigger than it is here on North Whidbey Island. That was one of my first thoughts. When God said, Would you be willing to plant a church on North Whidbey? I'd be like, What, me and the sheep? The deer, maybe? Is this how highly you think of me, Lord? But you know what? The reality is when we look at the greatest quote-unquote celebrity of our faith, the one who deserves all the glory, Jesus Christ, where did He minister? The Galilee. At a time when the Galilee was nothing. When Rome, man, be born in Rome! Or better yet, don't be born, Jesus. Ride in on a chariot into Rome. Yeah! A god among the gods. Bigger than the gods. You know, and, and then the whole world can hear your message. Be Caesar Christ. He came to this earth, to the backwater town of Bethlehem he was born. Moved to Nowheresville, Nazareth. And began to preach this message. It is so powerful and so potent. It has affected the world for 2,000 years and it continues to do so. And he rarely traveled further than 10 or 15 miles from his home. Furthest away he went was Jerusalem. He went about that far north as well. 
He just stayed in this tiny little place. And I'm like, Jesus, you missed the boat. You were a great teacher. You could have taught in the big population centers. No. No, that's not how it's done. Anyway, I told you I should write an op-ed. That was all kind of for free. You didn't have to pay for that tonight. That just came off the top of my head. (laughs) My point is this. Any ministry that does not result in humbleness is not a ministry of things pertaining to God. We are to be humble in our calling. The high priest was. Peter said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you. When? At the proper time. Which is rarely when I want it to be. See, my timing is not the same as God's. I would have been exalted about 40 years ago. If it was my timing. And I'm still waiting. And the longer I wait, the happier I am to wait. Because you know what, honestly? I don't want to be exalted here. I don't want to be exalted by anyone but Jesus Himself. I want to hear Him say, well done. Good job, Rick. (laughs) I long for that. But further consider... Our great high priest, though the high priest himself was supposed to be holy in his appointment and humanly weak and humble in his calling, what about our great high priest? Verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. Christ didn't even do it. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now he's just quoted there Psalm 2 verse 7 and Psalm 110 verse 4. Both very powerful priestly and kingly psalms. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Both of these psalms refer to the high priestly position of Jesus, listen, after his resurrection. These are statements after His resurrection. You are My Son, today I have begotten you is talking about the begottenness of Christ. We've talked about this, right? That the begottenness of Christ is the resurrection, not the birth in Bethlehem. That's not when He became begotten, the only begotten Son. The only begotten Son happened in His resurrection where Jesus was elevated where He was, number four in our high priestly list, honored by God. He was honored by God in His resurrection, in His glorification. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was honored by God, our great high priest. I think about when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and He was giving that great... No, no, not the Mount of Olives. Sorry, the, the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. So He was up in the Galilee. And He was giving that great Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in the midst of the sermon, about Matthew chapter 6, He begins talking about those who give and how to give. And then he begins talking about those who pray and and how to pray and those who fast and, and how to fast. And in the midst of each one of those, he stops and he says, those who do any of this, giving, praying, or fasting for self recognition, he said, Matthew 6 2, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. I don't like the sound of that at all. 
because I don't want this to be my reward in full. I want my reward to come from Jesus. As I said before, I want my honor to come from Jesus. And the truth is, Les, isn't it just an honor to serve Him? Just to be able to say you belong to Him? Isn't that honor enough? To, to be one of, to bear the name of Christ as a Christian? What an honor that is. I can't even imagine being honored by Him in that glorious day. Now, this next qualification is to me one of the most amazing mysteries of the incarnation of God made flesh. Number five, heard in prayer. Heard in prayer. The high priest was heard in prayer. He would go into the holy place, he would offer incense on the altar of incense before the Lord, and that incense itself, that sweet-smelling fragrance would go up and was a picture of the prayers of the people through their mediator, the high priest. In the same way, look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, talking about Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. It's a mystery of the incarnation, because how does incarnate God pray to exalted God? You were asked that question, I've asked that from time to time. How did God pray to God? Well, simple. That one's easy. Well, how's that work? Well, He's God. Well, explain it to me. I can't. But He's God. And Jesus in His flesh, and this is such a powerful verse, because the pastor is telling us He cried out to the Father. He prayed constantly. And He was heard in His many prayers. Now, I've studied this whole thing of the Incarnation very closely. I've looked at it. I've tried to understand how incarnate God can pray to eternal God. How God in the flesh on earth can pray to God in the Spirit in heaven. And I've come to the conclusion that I have no idea how that works. But, the Bible does tell us, 1 Timothy 3.16, by common confession... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I don't know how it worked, I just know it worked. Lots of things in our lives are like that. We don't know how it works, we just know it works. How often do you stop and think about what is going on when you flip the switch and the lights come on? You just know it's going to happen. And when it doesn't, something's wrong. I told you three weeks ago, I think it was now, maybe two weeks ago, that I replaced the garbage disposal in our kitchen. First time I've ever had to replace a garbage disposal in my life. I was amazed. Now I know how it works. For a long time. I didn't know before. It could have been a little man in there eating our food when I dropped it in. I, I didn't know. I just know you put the stuff in, you hit the switch, and it's gone. Right? Now I know how it works. Lots of things we don't know how it works. I don't know how the Trinity works. I don't know how the incarnation and the relationship of Jesus to the Father, I don't know how that, on a, on a spiritual level, on a supernatural level, how does that work? I don't know. But I know it did. I know it did. But for all the tearful prayers that he talks about in the days of his flesh, specifically, verse 7 is related to the tearful prayers offered up by Jesus in Gethsemane. 
That's specifically what he's talking about. It's, it's referred to, you can read the story I was going to, but I, we've got so much to cover tonight, I, I don't have time. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18 are the four references in the Gospels to the Garden of Gethsemane. I encourage you to read through those and consider Jesus and His tearful crying out to God in the Garden. Because in these brief glimpses of that, of that evening, of that time that Jesus spent in Gethsemane, on the night of His betrayal, we know that through loud crying and tearful supplications in the garden, there are some things that we understand now that we would not have understood otherwise. Because we have been given those beautiful little stories to show us what was going on, insights into that deeply intimate and passionate time for Jesus. We can understand that he had complete control over the situation. Read John's account. Complete control. It is so remarkable to think about that. That in the garden with the Roman garrison gathered around ready to take him off to jail, Jesus was calling the shots. And John makes it very clear that he was in control. We know that in the garden of Gethsemane that he gave himself fully to the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done, he said. We know by Luke's accounting that he was strengthened at that time. After his weeping became so intense and his prayers so intense that his capillaries, we believe, actually burst near his skin and became great drops of blood pouring down his face, mixed in with the sweat, that an angel came and ministered to him. He was strengthened in his prayer. But most of all, what we hear loud and clear coming from the voice of Jesus in the garden is, please understand this, He did not want to die. He didn't want to die. Flesh never does. You know, skin and blood never does. In the days of His flesh, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, which makes it even more remarkable that the apostles just 20 or 30 feet away were sound asleep. Jesus is crying out, weeping, and they're snoozing. What remarkable insensitivity. How incredibly human. (laughs) But he cried out. He did not want to die. So he called to the one who was able to save him from death. Note this, and he was heard because of his piety. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) No. How can you say he was heard? He died. In fact, right after the prayers, he was picked up and taken off to, to, you know, all of his unjust trials until ultimately he was crucified the next morning. How can you say his prayers were heard? It's kind of like George Bailey. I know I reference It's a Wonderful Life. Hey, it's one of my, you know, Wonderful Life and the Beatles. Those are my things. Um, George Bailey prayed at the bar, in Martini's bar, prayed, Oh God, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can help me, show me the way. Show me a way out. And in the next minute, he gets punched in the mouth. Do you remember what he says after that? Oh, that's what I get for, for praying a prayer. I get a punch in the mouth for praying a prayer. Jesus could say a lot better than that. I cried out to you, Father, and ended up nailed to the cross. Why didn't you answer me? Guess what? God did. The Hebrew writer tells us He heard. He was heard because of His piety in His righteousness in the garden. God heard every word He said. 
and answered him, heard his prayers. Listen, how does this work? Jesus wasn't just pathetically weeping. He was empathetically weeping. What do you mean? He wasn't trying to wriggle out from under the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw the sin of humanity before Him. He cried out to God. And His prayers were heard. Who was He praying for? I submit to you, not for Himself, but for you and for me. And what took place there in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayers were lifted up, prayers for all humanity, prayers in recognition of the sin that had to be nailed to that cross. Which is why He was able to say, not my will, but yours be done. He saw the sin. I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath for all of this, but not my will. Yours be done. And God heard that prayer and absolutely answered it. Such is the love of God. Although He was a son, verse 8, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. Having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now the last part of that verse is wonderful. I love it. He's the source of eternal salvation. But it's the first part of that verse and also verse 8 that really confuses. One more high priestly thing to note here. With all the other things we've looked at, having been made perfect, that's a qualification of a high priest. Having been made perfect is a qualification of our great high priest. Now, this is yet another controversial passage in this sermon, and it won't be the last one tonight. Was Jesus made perfect? I thought he already was. Now, we already addressed this kind of in chapter 2, verse 10, where we saw that Jesus was perfected, right? But, but that verse clearly is saying He's perfected as the author of our salvation. So good, we skipped by a little controversy there. We're okay. He was perfected as the author of our salvation. Through His life and death, burial, resurrection, He became you know, the perfect author of our salvation. So it really wasn't that the perfect God became imperfect and then had to be perfected. No, it was the author of our salvation. Well, here it's more difficult. He learned obedience. What? If he was perfect, why would he have to learn obedience? And it says, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him. Again, the source of eternal salvation. All right. Did Jesus Christ learn obedience? Let me just throw a couple other wrenches into the mix. Luke 2.40 tells us the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So Jesus got smarter as he grew up. Wait a minute, but he's God. How can God get smarter if God has all knowledge? Luke also says in Luke 2.52... And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So the question is, did did Jesus lack these things? No. No. But as a human being, He grew up in these things. Does that make sense to you? As a human being, I mean, think about it this way. We we saw Jesus um, as an infant. And then we read about him as a toddler two years later when the wise men come. And then we see him as a 12-year-old boy. He's growing physically. We don't have any problem with that concept, do we? That he grew physically from a baby all the way up to a man. Oh yeah, he grew. 
It's, it's the mental emotional stuff. We don't like to hear that. No, he's perfect. So how could he grow intellectually? Well, if he's human, he's going to grow in that humanity and in that understanding, just like a human being would. He learned obedience like a, an infant would or a toddler would or a 12-year-old would. I'm not saying he took the car without asking. But he learned obedience. Now, think this. stay with this for a second. As a human being, he grew up. I love the fact that Jesus grew up. And the Bible tells us, Isaiah 53, verse 2, For he grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no form or, or, or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was just your average Yeshua. And I say that because the name Jesus was an average name. He was your average Joshua. You know? Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, he's a Galilean, you know, whatever, just your average guy, carpenter's son, nothing big. He grew up. The implications are with this learned obedience, the implications are this. Jesus experienced something that he hadn't before. So, are you saying he didn't understand? No, I believe he understood. But he actually went through it. And I can tell you this unequivocally, and you can't even disagree with me on this. God had never been a human before, right? He had never grown up before. He had never been a child before. He experienced something that he hadn't before. That doesn't mean he didn't understand it. doesn't mean he wasn't perfect. doesn't mean any of that. It just means this was a new thing. When God became flesh, He became completely human. I love the way Rich Mullins talks about this. I heard this years ago at a concert, a Christian celebrity concert that he was giving. (laughs) He said this, Imagine God creating the first snowflake. And if you've ever looked at a snowflake closely, how precise and perfect, and every single one is different. All unique. Billions upon billions upon trillions of snowflakes that have fallen in history. Imagine God creating the first one and the delight that He must have had doing that. Imagine God creating the human tongue. You know, let's put taste buds there. So when this kind of food hits this taste bud, it'll light them up with, you know, they'll be so happy, chocolate. And when this food hits this taste bud, it'll be bitter. And, you know, the workmanship just that goes into the human tongue, remarkable. Oh, and the same tongue, this muscle in their mouth is going to help them articulate sound so they can understand one another. And then imagine God, for the very first time, tasting a snowflake on His tongue. And that's where we get maybe a little more sense of God experiencing humanity. The idea of Him learning obedience is very simply this. It translates easy, understanding submission. He learned obedience. He understood submission in the things which He suffered. Saying, not my will but yours be done, Jesus walked through and experienced exactly what it means to submit to the Father. So when Jesus says to you, says to me, I want you to submit to the Father, He's not telling us to do something that He doesn't understand. Now, stay with me, because I I don't want to lose you here, but I still believe He already understood that. And even for all the experience that He had that He had never had before, He still understood humanity. He created us. He's perfect in all of that. 
But by experiencing it, by, by quote-unquote learning or understanding obedience, He now has every right to call for it among us. To ask us to obey. Because He did. Having been made perfect is one word in the Greek. When you look at verse 9, and having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey Him. It's one word. And if we had this one word and saw this, it would, I think, clear things up. So I'll tell you what it is. Teleos. When Jesus on the cross cries out, die," He's saying, it's finished. It's done. It's completed. Same word. The root word of die" is teleos. Having been made perfect means completed, accomplished, or consummated. Jesus consummated His mission. He completed everything that needed to be completed. And having completed, you could say it that way, having completed everything, He became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Make sense? It's not that difficult. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection, He finished everything that He was sent to complete. And having done that, He became for us the source of our eternal salvation. Salvation. He grew up. He completed everything. And now we look to Jesus and He rightly says to us, I want you to grow up. He doesn't say it to me. It's like, just why did you grow up? I mean, there have been times where I've wanted to say that. You know, to someone in my office. They leave my office. I say, God bless you. Have a wonderful day. The door closes. And I go, why don't they grow up? It's going to be the last time anyone comes into my office. I, I, I'm not going to answer that question less. <laughs> Les leaves. Will he ever grow up? No, what Jesus is saying, he wants us to grow up. We are no longer to be children. Ephesians 4.14 Tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, that is Christ. He grew up first, and now He says, I want you to grow up in Me. He obeyed first. I want you to obey Me. And He has every right. And then verse 10, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, who's this Melchizedek character we keep hearing about? Melchizedek. Read verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, he's going to get to this Melchizedek, as we will. But i got to confess something to you, and some of you are way further along than I was. But I confess to you that the first time I sat down and truly did a serious study through the Sermon of Hebrews, did a verse by verse, and this was, uh, we were living in Anacortes, we had just moved up to, to Washington, I had scads of time on my hands, 
serving with my brother in a, in a little church that we had just started up. 30 people, three full-time pastors. Do the math. I had nothing to do. And I was going stir-crazy because I came out of a very, very busy church. I had nothing to do. So I finally realized that God was giving me the sabbatical that I had been praying about for years. And thought, okay, I'm going to do what I never had time to do before. I'm going to start studying the Bible verse by verse. That, by the way, is what seeded the call to the bridge. But back at that time, I sat down and thought, I want, to, I want to study through the Bible. I don't want to start at the beginning and go through the whole thing, because I had tried reading the one-year Bible, and that was very difficult to do. So I just wanted to pick a book. I thought, Hebrews. I've never studied Hebrews. Let's give this one a shot. I was 37 years old, and the first time I came to the name Melchizedek in Hebrews, I had, I had heard it before. I had no idea who he was talking about. He's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. What's that? It sounds like the Illuminati or something, you know? The Melchizedekian order. I, I didn't know. I had no clue. It's just one of those funky Old Testament names. Must have something to do with that. And I wondered, I read it, and I thought, who is this Milky Zadok? <laughs> and what does Milky Zadok have to do with Jesus? And I call him that because I was in many ways a milky Christian. Milk does a body good, the old commercial used to say. Yeah, well, biblically, it's baby food. It's not good. In fact, Peter says, like newborn babies, long for pure spiritual milk or the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. He's talking to newbies when he says that. If you're a brand new Christian, long for the milk of the Word because that's how it starts out for you. It starts out tasting like good milk, like an infant drinking milk, getting the nutrition from the milk, but we are supposed to grow up, right? We just learned that, like Jesus, grow up. Some never do. Some never do. Milky Way Christianity. And all it does is cause lactose intolerance. What do you mean? The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Milky Christianity, that is lighter fare, never getting into the meat, never digging in, never taking the time. You know, sometimes we'll be in here on a Wednesday night an hour and a half. And I have sat under teaching like that before and gotten 15 minutes into it and gone, how long is it going to be here? You know, growing up in a 20 minute sermon church, that's milky Christianity. Sometimes you need an hour and a half just to get to the understanding. You need the time to work it through together. I'm not saying that's what we'll do tonight, although it's entirely possible. <laughs> Lactose intolerance is we don't have any tolerance for in-depth teaching. No, not you. You wouldn't be here if you didn't have tolerance for it. In fact, I believe you're here tonight because you want the steak. I'll come back to that. And by saying that, I think I just bought myself an extra 45 minutes. But verse 1... <laughs> Verse 1 of chapter 6, and, and there's more in here to draw out. In fact, I love verse 14. Let me cover that one more time. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The more you walk with the Lord, the more you are in His Word, the more you know when Satan's trying to deceive. The more alert you are to what is going on around you. see it coming. You're aware of it. You're sharp to it. And it comes through practice. 
By practice, your senses get trained. Well, what am I supposed to practice? I would say practice time in the Word and practice time in prayer. And the more you are in the Word, studying the Word and going through the Word, the more you will be alert to the counterfeits that are out there. The more you are in prayer before the Lord, time spent with the Lord, the more sensitive you are to anything spiritual that is not of Him. By practice we learn to discern these things. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let's press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let's leave these elementary things. He's now used the word elementary twice. It is time to get out of elementary school and lay aside your milk money for something that's more valuable. Time to grow up. The word elementary, RK in the Greek, means beginning or starting point. These are starting point topics. Let me read them again. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment are elementary, my dear Watson. These are not the in-depth things that God wants to bring us to in our understanding of the Word and of His purposes and His work in us. These are basics. 101 Christianity, right? 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 What do these all have in common? Well, they're all basics, Rick. You just said that. Okay, I know that. Most of us read these things and we say, oh, they're Christian basics. I would submit to you they are not. I would submit to you they are Hebrew basics. That all of these things that the Hebrew pastor lists out here are basics of the Old Testament. I've always read this as, well, these are... That's Christianity right there. You know, repentance and faith and instructions about washings. Well, that's baptism. It's not, by the way. Laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. I heard those sermons over and over and over growing up in the church that I was raised in. Just went around the block again. Oh yeah, repentance. Got that one. What are we talking about? Eternal judgment this morning? Okay, check again. And I would hear this and read this. We're not supposed to keep doing that over and over. I have no idea. He's not talking just about Christian basics. He's talking about spiritual basics that go all the way back to Genesis, man. And so what I put before you tonight is this tough question. How many of us as Christians are well-versed in Genesis through Malachi? How many Christians know the Hebrew Scriptures inside now, backward and forward? Why don't we? And when we want to understand deeper things, but we get stuck in the elementary 20-minute hominy, you know, hominy, homonyms, you know, little bite-sized sermonettes, well, no wonder we don't know the Hebrew Scriptures. No wonder we're still sucking on milk instead of the meat of the Word of God. You said washings, Rick. You said that's not baptism. No, the word washing here is not baptism as we think of it. It's baptismos in the Greek, not baptizo. Well, it's still baptism, isn't it? No, it's not. Two different words. 
Baptizo is baptism, immersion. Baptismos is used three times in the New Testament. It's used here in Mark chapter 7 verse 4 and in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 10. Not going to read them right now. Look them up. But what it's talking about, the uh, washings, instructions about washings, the washings are the Hebrew washings. The ceremonial washings. It's called the the Tivilah, which is full immersion in a mikvah bath. That the Jews would go into the mikvah before going up into the temple. They would go down into the mikvah, fully dunk dunk themselves, and then come back out, and then they could go on into the temple. That's a ceremonial washing. That's baptismos. Or other washings, the netilat yadayim, which is hand washings. They had specific ways of hand washing. Still do it today. The Orthodox Jews will. The Hasidic Jews. But the washings he's talking about, this is Jewish. And again, the foundation of repentance. That's Jewish, man. Faith toward God, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. All of these are Jewish. And what the... What the pastor is telling us here is these are appetizers. They're like veggie straws. You know? They're carrots and celery and a little bit of dip. They are not the main course. They're beginner fare. The teaching, get this, the teaching of Melchizedek, that is a thick, juicy ribeye by comparison. That's what he wants to get to. He mentions Melchizedek twice and he's really excited to talk about him, but he can't get to him because they're not ready. My grandson is just starting to eat cereal. And it's adorable. Hannah sent me a little video. He's got the spoon and he's, you know, he's putting it on and he's over here. So he's trying to learn to get the spoon to his mouth. It's really cute to watch. Soft stuff, baby food. Have you ever had those mashed carrots? All that stuff, I tried it. The, the, The mashed plums and the... The green beans are nasty. Can we force this into their little mouths? But that's what he's talking about here. These things, they're, they're basic stuff. Note again what the pastor says at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. Now, following on from what he just said, shouldn't it be... Okay, alright. Since you're used to being bottle-fed, maybe I'll start you out on some nice pablum. Maybe we'll go for the mashed carrots and see how you hold that down. That's not what he says. He says, therefore, because you're used to milk and not solid food, because you're not used to having steak on the plate, therefore, I'm going to fire up the barbecue. Therefore, my one-year-old grandson... Therefore, we're going to have a burger today. I mean, that's what he's saying. Therefore, you're milk people. Therefore, I'm cooking steak. Why? F.F. Bruce puts it this way. Only an appreciation of what is involved in Christ's high priesthood will cure their particular condition of immaturity. Their minds need to be stretched, and this will stretch them as nothing else can. We think in the church, what we need to do to attract people is pour out the milk. No, we need to put out the steak. And if people aren't used to it, guess what? They will get used to it. And they will get to a point when you... And this has happened. 
where you'll teach for an hour and a half and afterward they're still hanging around asking questions. It's like, go home. It's over. (laughs) Because we want the meat. You hunger for it. You desire it. Verse 3. And this we will do. We're going to move on. We're going to go forward. We're going to press on to maturity. This we will do if God permits. Now why does he say that? Because even maturity is not something that is accomplished by the sheer force of our own will. Our maturity only comes by God's goodwill and favor. So we will press on to maturity if it pleases God. And it does. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, oh, I like this, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Bam! And we didn't see it coming. We just got slapped with another controversy. And this is a big one. Many Christians, some of them even meat-eaters, will read this and tremble and say, what if I lose my salvation? What if I lose my salvation? And the whole back and forth argument of the ages, once saved, always saved, versus, no, you can lose your salvation. It's as tenuous as dental floss, you know. I've had people, and recently, ask the question, what about my salvation? Is it secure? There's always that look of concern. And what if I slide? I read Hebrews 6, they'll say. What if I backslide? Does that mean I can never get back? What if my backsliding goes just a little too far? Can I never get back? And passages like this, man, it just makes us tremble. We were talking about it with our staff today. Rachel was sharing that she had talked with a friend about it and they were both talking about how bizarre it would be if the other one, if they watched the other one lose their faith and walk away from God and lose their salvation. And they talked about it until they had to stop because it was just too upsetting to even imagine. Let me answer this with two better questions than can I lose my salvation. Two better questions that need answering. Number one, who accomplishes your salvation? Who? Christ Christ Jesus. You didn't. You don't. You did not get yourself saved. You believed Him for it. You put faith in Him for what He did. He saved you. You did not save you. As many as received Him, John 1.12, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of, note this, nor of the will of man, but of God. You were not saved by your will. You were saved by God's will. All you did was put faith in Him. All you did was say, okay, I trust you. All right. You're telling me I'm saved. If I claim the name of Jesus, I claim. That's all you did. If maturity comes only by God's will and pleasure, how much more our salvation? How much more our salvation? So, question number one, who accomplishes your salvation? He does. Question number two, to whom is the pastor writing? 
Now, this is part of the answer. He's writing to Jewish Christians. Right? And in their understanding, part of the answer is that these Jewish Christians are in danger of slipping back into the law. He's already warned against this. He will continue to call them to press forward. Don't shrink back. Don't go back to the old sacrifices and offerings. You need to press on in Christ Jesus. You need to move forward. Now, the writer is concerned with this Jewish audience here. But we got to look more closely at what he has just said. So in understanding this whole idea of apostasy or falling away, look at verses 4 and 5 one more time. Listen to what he says. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. By the way, that word once is later translated in this sermon, once for all. It speaks of a one-time event. An only time. You can't, you can't be re-enlightened. Alright? It only happens once. You can't be born again again. You're born again, period. Or you're not. Okay? So it's a one-time event. For those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, the word tasted is the same word used where, where he said before that Jesus tasted death, which we defined as he swallowed it whole. So we're not talking about someone who took a little sample of, of the heavenly gift. No, they have eaten it. They have uh, swallowed it. Once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. You have dined on the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God now dwells in you. And, verse 5, have tasted, that word tasted again, has swallowed up the good Word of God, and if that's not enough, the powers of the age to come. The person he's describing here is not simply the Jewish person who came out of Judaism and and could backslide into that. He is describing the faith mentality of someone who is absolutely saved. This is a powerful description of a saved person. Now keep that in mind. This saved individual is enlightened. Their brain has been ignited. (laughs) They've tasted of the heavenly gift. Their, Their taste buds are excited. They've tasted the good word. Their belly's delighted. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is invited. And they have tasted and, and experienced the powers of the age to come. That is future incited. I'm going to read those again because I just think they're cool. Brain ignited, taste buds excited, spirit invited, belly delighted, future incited. Got it? This is huge. This is the person who is banging on all cylinders when it comes to salvation. They have it. It's all happened. The experience of it, the understanding. They are in 150%. And if someone that saved were to fall away, spurning their own salvation, repentance would be impossible. By the way, notice that. He says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. It doesn't say it's impossible to save them. But that's implied because they wouldn't even repent. Why is it impossible to renew them to repentance? Because the heart of someone who falls that far would not receive it. Couldn't receive it. He goes on to say, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And if, if you... If you love someone that much as described in verses 4 and 5... 
and then you cut them off, you'd never forgive yourself. You would never repent. You could never come back from that. Put another way, true apostasy is irremediable. You can't be healed of it. I know I'm making some of you uncomfortable right now because you're thinking of your apostate brother, you know, or that family member who walked away and you're going, he's saying they are lost eternally. I'm saying person... Who's, the person who's described in verses 4 and 5, if they were to do this, yes, they would be lost eternally and there would be no saving them again. He is that clear. But here's what you've got to understand. I think Christians worry about their salvation way too much. Well, how much is too much? I'll tell you how much is too much. Worrying about your salvation for one second is too much as far as I'm concerned. Why do we worry about something that we were told we have? Why do we worry when Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand? John chapter 10, read it and reread it. That when He gives, He does not take it away. That our salvation, as far as Jesus is concerned, and His grace and His forgiveness is absolutely secure, so why do we worry so much about it? Because of these verses we just read. That makes me worried. John said in verse, 1 John 5.13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Can I just get a show of hands? Who believes in the name of the Son of God among us here tonight? Okay, full house. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Period. If you raise your hand and you believe in the name of the Son of God, don't worry about your salvation. You have it. And it is absolutely secure. Okay, again, but what about this? Look, don't guess. Don't question. Don't wonder. Because I don't believe that he's making a salvation statement here at all. Now, this is just my opinion. Please don't line up afterwards to point out how I'm wrong. You know, good pastors and scholars have disagreed with me. Just because their opinions are incorrect is okay. I believe what's going on here in verses 4, 5, and 6 is a rhetorical statement, a hypothetical about how absolutely ridiculous it would be for someone to be so intimately saved only to spit out such a sweet salvation. He's making an extreme point. This would be nuts if it were to happen. He's not saying it's happening. And he's not, notice he doesn't say, for in your case, who have been enlightened, he's not pointing a finger at the readers. He's saying, in the case of those who have, rhetorically, hypothetically speaking, if someone were to be in this position, this tight with Jesus, this enlightened, and by the way, in the second century, the word enlightenment was uh, synonymous with baptism. That's what they called baptism, the enlightenment. To be that far along with Jesus, And then to renounce faith in Him? No. You you couldn't be saved again. But He's not talking about you. He's not talking about me. He's giving a hypothetical. How do you know that? Well, having fallen away is the word parapipto. So, just for a moment, parapipto with me through the tulips. (laughs) It's the only time the word is used in... (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks, Deb. It's the only time the word is used in the Bible. It's the one time, this word, parapipto, and it means to deviate from or to fall aside from. And Weist, in his word study, says it is a conditional participle that here presents a hypothetical case or a straw man. He sets it up. He says, you know, I mean, some were so saved and then walked away. No, they couldn't be saved again. Bruce puts it this way. He says, in these verses, he's not questioning the perseverance of the saints. Rather, he's insisting that those who persevere are true saints. This is, when I say totally ridiculous, we have a word for that in my house. We say totes redonk. That is totes redonk. Absolutely beyond ridiculous. That's the point he's making here. You're not going to be this far along and fall away. Now throughout the letter, remember this is an encouraging letter. It was not written to discourage or to, to sow fear into the hearts of believers. Oh man, oh man, you could be so far along. See, that, that's Muslim thinking. Do you realize that? The idea that God is so spurious that on one day He could say you're saved and on the next day go, nah, I don't think so. Hannah saying great on Sunday morning, saved. On Monday morning, she said something to her roommate that I just didn't like, not saved. That's Allah in the Quran. That, that's the position of the God of Islam. You could, on, you could live the perfect life and on the very last day, you could have one foot just almost into heaven and you could say, nope, you're gone. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the one true living God who offers us grace and mercy to help in time of need. This is a hypothetical, I'm convinced. So you might say, well, Rick, then why do we see true saints fall away? And I want to throw that question right back to you. Do we? Do we really? Do we see true saints, people who have once and for all been enlightened and tasted of the gift and partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasters of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, do we see these people falling away right and left? See, I don't see that. In my experience, when I see the verses 4 and 5 people, I see them increasing in love and grace and passion for Jesus. And note, when he says fall away, he's not talking about falling into sin. We all do that. Now I have seen great people of faith fall into big sin. I have seen people who you wouldn't have, people who were the verse four and five people who have sinned dramatically. Well, does that mean that they've fallen away from Jesus? That they have rebelled against and rejected God? See, that's what I, I, I don't see. You might have a case of that, and we could talk about that. But we, here's the thing, we judge externally. God sees the heart. We see someone fall and go, oh, epic fall, that's it. That person's not going to heaven. Really? Are we the judge of that? I I would prefer not to be. I think I'd rather leave that judgment to Jesus Christ and trust Him for His grace because I know I need every drop of grace I can get. David said in Psalm 51, verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I think that's beautiful. He didn't say, restore to me my salvation that I lost by sleeping with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. Please give me back the salvation that I know is gone now because I'm just such a sinner. 
I was one who grew up believing that if you crossed God, you could lose your salvation. I grew up believing, thinking, I'm not blaming my parents for this, by the way, I'm blaming myself. I had this paradigm, this thought, that somehow, I, if I died and hadn't confessed all of my sin, if I had unconfessed sin, oh no, I'm going to lose my salvation. You know what that does? It undermines the truth of the Word of God that says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, so that no man can boast. No, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I believe maybe there are those who aren't saved, but externally they show up, they go to church, they play the game, but they're not, they've never, they've never been enlightened. They've never tasted of the heavenly gift. Not yet. They may have come to the table and looked at it, smelled it, tried a little taste, you know, but they haven't gotten there. Someone says, I've been backsliding. Am I lost forever? Hey, if our salvation is based on our works, we're all lost forever. But it's not. Praise God, it is not. What did Jesus say to the woman thrown in front of Him, caught in the act of adultery? He said to her, does anyone condemn you? She said, no one, my Lord. And He said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And I think that's the answer. Anytime you backslide, or if someone comes to you and says, and says I, I've fallen into old sin and I don't know what to do. Oh, let's pray about it. Bow your head and say, Lord, give my brother, give my sister the power by your spirit to go their way and sin no more. Done. See, that's the wonder of grace. That's not license to sin. But the other side of the coin, and why this warning is here, is that no one would even contemplate walking away. Don't even give it a second thought. You just fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. You keep looking at Him, and this will not be an issue for you. And in fact, think about this. The whole context of what he's arguing here follows immediately on the heels of entering into His rest. It's the rest of Jesus. God's rest. He did the work. I enter that rest. And then he comes and begins to talk about these things. We were looking before in chapter 5 at the high priestly qualifications. Listen, there is only one qualification for salvation. Faith in our great high priest Yeshua. That's the qualification. That is the only hope of salvation. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Therefore, Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. Let's not have focus groups on whether or not we can lose our salvation. Let's just focus our attention on Jesus and that's not an issue. It's a done deal. We're fine. We're saved. Now, a little more. Just a little more because there's a few bites of steak left on your plate. I see it there. To explain this further, the Hebrew pastor offers a mini parable based off of a parable of Jesus. See if you know which one. Verse 7, he says, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled and it receives a blessing from God. 
Verse 8, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being burned or being cursed and it ends up being burned. Which parable would that be? There it is. You got it. Parable of the seeds and the sower and the, the soils. It's Matthew 13. And specifically verse 22 where Jesus says, the one on whom seed was sown, seed is the word, right? The soil or the ground is the heart. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I love the application here because listen, he says, for ground, we might say soil or the heart, Note this, that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Ground, the heart that receives the rain. The rain in the Scriptures is often a picture of the Spirit of God. The seed of the Word is tilled on the soil of our hearts It's received. It begins to grow. What do we need for it to continue to grow? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And He grows that in us. He produces in us. Proverbs 16.15 In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain, or the latter rains. Hosea chapter 6 verse 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and He will come to us like the rain, like the spring or the latter rain watering the earth. James 5 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and latter rains. The rain, the Spirit of God. On the soil of the heart, with the seed of the word. And the ground of the heart, which receives the seed and then receives that rain, will bring produce and will be blessed. On the other hand, the ground that yields thorns and thistles is already cursed because it denies the Spirit of God, which then kills the word so that it cannot grow. Verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. And verse 9 is another reason why I believe verses 4 through 6 are hypothetical. Because now in verse 9, he's saying, look, I said that, but that's not what we're thinking about with you. That doesn't apply to you. We have better things. There are better things, things that accompany salvation. What are those things? Verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered in and and in still ministering to the saints. Okay, one of those things that accompany salvation, love. And verse 11, And we desire that each one of you know the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Hey, hope accompanies salvation. When you know you're saved, you always have hope. We're going to get into this deeper on Sunday morning. Listen, I am never hopeless. On my worst day, I always have hope. Because I'm saved. So no matter what happens in this life, the hope is still there. I don't know how people make it on their worst days when they don't have the hope of salvation. 
But it accompanies salvation. If you know you're saved, you got the hope. You got the love. Verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, well, hey, faith accompanies salvation, right? And patience inherit the promises. He speaks in terms of ministry because the saved naturally minister. So back there in verse 10, he he talks about the love which you've shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Man, that's just part of the deal. When you know you're saved, you are filled with faith and hope and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. The greatest of these is love. And with that, He throws in patience. These things accompany our salvation. They come alongside. These are the better things. The better things. And these are what are held out for those who call on the name of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, lead us out of here with these things that accompany the salvation that You have promised. Fill us with faith in Jesus. Give us the hope of our Savior. Lord, may we be overwhelmed by love and in giving love. And in all of this, make us patient, Father. Patient until You come. In Jesus' name, Amen.